in the last 20 years, we have drawn down our forces. You know, the active duty numbers have dwindled down. We're a leaner, meaner military because they've relied more on the reservists. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 175 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Joseph Galura. He is an anesthesiologist currently practicing in Loma Linda. He's also an Air Force reservist, and he's here to help me understand, as someone who's heard a lot about this, but I'm still very confused, all the different career paths and options and trajectories for physicians in the armed services. So Dr. Galura, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Justin. Glad to be here. Glad like listen to your podcast uh, for a while now. Just super happy to be here. Thank you. For starters, I noticed there's a, I see a guitar headstock in your background. Are you a musician? Meddling uh, musician. My brother is a, a professional musician in Hawaii. So he tells me what to play, what chords to play. <laughs> nice. I, uh, I have an electric guitar in my basement that has been gathering dust. Uh For a little while now, it's amazing what launching a business and, you know, being a physician spouse, physician household and having a soon to be three-year-old running around. Right. What it does for your capacity to uh, practice. Well, this, this guitar here, it's, it's gathering dust also. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I graduated from residency uh, 14 years ago and there was a spike in income, as you know, as a new attendant. And my wife knew that also. <laughs> so we were at, uh, we were at my uh, children's grade school and they had the annual gala. And so there was a silent auction and this guitar was sitting there. And I think it cost $900 and my wife won the bid. And why did it cost $900? It's not a Fender Stratocaster, it's a knockoff. It's because the Jonas Brothers signed the, the Woodstock in, in the pit guard. And I said to myself, the Jonas Brothers are never going to have career longevity. And here we, that was 2009. Here we are on 2023. And yes, they are A-list celebrity pop stars. That is pretty incredible. <laughs> but I think it's been plugged in once into an amp and it actually sounds pretty good. I don't think I've ever changed the strings. That's how often I play it. I think yeah. when my brother, I think when my brother comes over from Hawaii, I think he plays it. So I leave it out for him. Oh, and that's... for display, and for display when I'm on podcast. <laughs> that is a pretty good story. I gotta say, I did enjoy the uh, the Jonas Brothers documentary, which was on Amazon Prime. So guys, we'll link to that one in the show notes. Why not? <laughs> APMsuccess.com slash 175. <laughs> I think it's called Road to Happiness. Well, I enjoyed that's, watching that. That's one. a great. That's a great title right there. So I, I probably I'm probably going to watch it. Tell us a little bit about your background. You know, professionally and clinically, and where does the your involvement in the military kind of come into play? Okay, I work at the VA Loma Linda. Like, like I said, I graduated from residency about 14 years ago. 
uh, already. Unbelievable. My first job out of residency, I'm here in Southern California, uh, just outside of Los Angeles. Uh, my first job out of residency, uh, I spent eight years at San Bernardino County uh, Medical Center, also known as Arrowhead Regional Medical Center. So wide catchment area, pretty much knife and gun club. So that was eight years of that. And then I uh, just got a little tired of the, yeah, the trauma lifestyle, but it was a great learning opportunity. But I, being a veteran, I knew that maybe I was going to move to the VA. And so that's where I, I've been the last six years, taking care of our veterans at the VA Loma Linda Medical Center. They made me an assistant clinical professor through Loma Linda University. So I work with residents and students, and that's just incredibly rewarding. But my military background, I wasn't ready for college, not ready for prime time in high school. So this wise guy by the name of my father <laughs> said, why don't you take a look at the military in my junior year of high school? He, that's what he told me. And then senior year comes around and he goes, what's your plan? You know, we are six months away from graduation. And I'm like, I think I'm going to join the military. <laughs> Dad's plan. Anyways, dad grew up in the Philippines next to an Air Force base, an American Air Force base. And he, he's the one who suggested, why don't you take a look at the Air Force? So lucky for me, I had enough intellect to do well on the military entrance exam to get into the Air Force, thank God. And did well enough to get a job in the medical field in the Air Force. So two months after graduating from high school, I left for Air Force basic training and I spent uh, six years on active duty. So six years on active duty. And I think during that time, it was just adventure. You know, and I wanted to travel. And that's one of the big reasons I joined the, the military and the Air Force. And so my first assignment took me to the great country of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was it was a phenomenal assignment in San Antonio, Texas for, uh, I'd say, about two and a half years. And then, uh, you know. I was lucky enough to get stationed in West Germany for the remainder of my active duty time. I was in, uh, it was during the Cold War, so it was West Germany then. And that was definitely an adventure and just had uh, Uncle Sam paid for everything. <laughs> you know, I lived off base, Uncle Sam paid for that. I think I had every other weekend off, a three day weekend. And so my friends and I just traversed, you know, Western Europe. Just a fun time. But after that, after six years, it was time to start college. I separated in April of 91 during the Gulf War, after the Gulf War, actually. And so I was doing my general education back home in Southern California, you know, at a local community college. And then maybe about a year after I separated, I kind of started missing the military. And it was just really weird. <laughs> I guess I missed being part of a team and I guess I missed wearing the uniform. So I went to an Air Force Reserve recruiter and I, they, they got me in and I've been in ever since. <laughs> so that was 91. So throughout undergrad, I was in the reserve. I became an officer after I graduated from undergrad. I went to school to be a physician assistant at first, 
And that can be a completely different podcast right there. So I was a physician assistant first, and then I decided to go to medical school. So I got into medical school. I was in the reserves during medical school, and then anesthesia residency, and now as an attending. And uh, I think, you know, the big reason why I'm still in is because at every step of the way, I've had these skills that I've been able to give back to the Air Force or to the military. And that's why I'm still involved today, because I have these critical skills that I know can help our service members in time and need. When the military calls me, you know, I'm a reservist. That's pretty much my story. So I, I'm going to say 37 years of military service total. And so when it's time to hang it up, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, it's such a big part of my life. I mean, if you were to cut me, I'm going to believe this stuff right here. You know, and I know there's a lot of people out there, you know, who are listening to your podcast, who've been in the service and the and specific, specifically Marines, you know, where there's a lot of speed of core. If you were to cut those guys and those gals, they would they would bleed Marine colors, you know, so they understand, you know. And so we're getting to we're this this talk is going to be really Air Force centric because that's the culture I'm in. There's a lot of different service cultures, and maybe we'll get to talking about that. But in the end, you know, we're all in it together. In the 37 years of service I've, I've been in, I've rubbed shoulders with every service, you know, and I know about most of the cultures, but we're all one team. Cool. Well, for any of our listeners, if somebody's hearing this and thinking, oh, that's not how it was in the Army, or that's not how the Navy does it. Call me up, <laughs> send me an email, and we can have you come on. And tell there you go. Too. There you go. So yeah, I'll, I'll just take this opportunity to say thanks for your service. As I mentioned, you know my my father was in the Marines, and other family members who have served our country honorably, and I have just profound respect for our men and women in uniform. And it's great to be speaking with you on this topic today. Thank you, Justin. So tell us a little bit about some of your experience. You know, when you're in Germany or other deployment experiences that you okay. had, and what was that like? Well, let me just tell you right now that, you know, I did, there, there's different classifications of reservists. There's the traditional reservist who does one week in a month, two weeks out of the year. Okay. So in the last 14 years, I've been in a different category. I'm no longer a traditional reservist. I'm what you call an individual mobilization augmentee, the IMA. I'm an IMA reservist. So I'm attached to the active duty. So I'm a reservist. I do four weeks out of the year for reserve duty, but I'm attached to the active duty when I do that. So my assignment the last five years has been as a staff anesthesiologist at the 316th uh, Surgical Operations Squadron at Joint Base Andrews in uh, Maryland. So I go there four weeks out of the year, usually two weeks in the spring, two weeks in the fall. So when I go there, I do anesthesia and as a staff anesthesiologist. And when I show up, they know, you know, I've been there for five years. I go, they give me my assignment. I go do anesthesia. And I chose that assignment because I never, this is the great thing about the reserve. You're in control of your assignments. So I requested to be stationed in the nation's capital because I'd never been stationed there before in my military career. So 
I get to take care of some interesting people who come into my ambulatory surgery center, active duty people, retirees, and some of these people have some interesting jobs being in, in proximity to the nation's capital. Now, I have to be careful when I ask them what they do. You know, they tell me what they do. I'm like, oh, wow. But after I give them the midazolam, it's like, okay, I'm not asking any more questions. That's funny. We're not asking any more questions because if you do, they, keep, they start to spill stuff that we don't need to know, that I don't have a need to know. And I always find it just interesting, you know. I had this, no, I, I had this, pa- I had this patient and he was a 40 year army guy, you know, officer, war officer. And the army chief of staff, I'm not gonna say if he's current or not, <laughs> would not let him retire. <laughs> And, you know, you get all these kinds of crazy information from these people. And so, yeah, I, I'm like, okay, no, I'm not, I'm, after I give them a dance, I'm not, I'm not asking any more questions. That's it. <laughs> you know, but yeah, it, it's a, it, it's a unique opportunity. That's just a unique opportunity, you know, to be able to take care of any of these people. You know, I took care of, okay, I was in DC. I took care of this retired submariner. He was, uh, I think he was in the Navy for 20 years and we were talking about submarines and stuff like that. And, you know, we were talking about the Chinese and, and the Russians and where they're at with their, with their technology and, you know, and just to gain insight like that. So out, outside of anesthesia to have access to that. Now, I mean, if you're somebody who's into that stuff, this is a job for you, you know? And so, and we have special access. And I'm a, most of the time, 11 months out of the year, I'm a civilian anesthesiologist. And so for one month out of the year, I get access to these guys and get, and be able to rub shoulders with them. Now, how do my active duty counterparts treat me? They treat me like one of them, you know? And so, this classification as an IMA reservist for the last 14 years has been very special being with the active duty. So do the different branches all have like an IMA designation? They do. I don't know about the Coast Guard, but, but the Coast Guard doesn't have any physicians. Okay. The public health, public health core takes care of uh, the Coast Guard, but the Navy has IMAs and the army has IMAs. So, I'd say it's a great class classification for reservists to be in. Now, it's not the majority. The majority of reservists are traditional reservists, one week in a month, two weeks out of the year. So let me think here. We're talking about jobs, right? We're talking about jobs. Now, I'm a staff anesthesiologist, and so I chose to be that. But there's other jobs as a reservist that you can do as an anesthesiologist. Now, there's another one, it's called the critical care air transport team. Because you're an anesthesiologist, you have had critical care background, you can be the ICU doctor in the sky transporting our sickest patients from the battlefield back to home station. 
And so that's a pretty big job uh, these days. You're embedded with a critical care nurse and a respiratory therapist. And so you're flying in our big, you know, cargo planes, transporting the sickest patients back. So that's one job that uh, reserve physicians can do. So you're like running an ICU on a C-130. That's pretty much it right there. That's kind of crazy. So you can be a staff physician, you know, at your civilian hospital, staff anesthesiologist. And then on the weekend or, you know, on the weekend, your weekend duty, or if you get deployed, now you're wearing another hat. You're the ICU doc, okay? And, you know, you're taking care of, you know, our sailors, Marines, soldiers, Air Force members, and even, see, I mean, one of my colleagues who's a critical care air transport doc, and I'm telling his story. Maybe he's watching this, but he told me one time he was somewhere, and they picked up this, this CIA operative, a young CIA operative who was all blown up and he transported her back to uh, the States. So that's, we. not only do we take care of DOD, we take care of other stuff too, you know? So uh, in, it's very interesting. This is a world, you know, for the people out there. Yeah, this is a special world. If you have, if you have the time, and you can put the time away and don't worry about the monetary costs. It's a special opportunity. Obviously, this kind of job attracts some interesting people. You mentioned a general surgeon that you had oh, yes, interacted yes, with in the past. Yes. Why don't I mean, you, you know, tell that story? Like Justin, we talked about this. A lot of these stories I've rubbed shoulders with in my, my 37 years of service. Uh, at my first, my first civilian job at the county hospital, I worked with a general surgery, unassuming guy, very nice guy. He was Army Reserve. During the waning days of the Iraqi war, you know, end of 2008, he he volunteered deployed to Iraq. And when he came back nine months later, after nine-month deployment, I said, hey, you know, you were in theater. How many, how many surgeries did you perform? He goes, oh, I didn't perform any surgeries. I go, oh, well, what'd you do? He goes, oh, I volunteered to be a public affairs officer winning the hearts and minds of the Iraqis and stabilizing their government. I was like, John, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so he was a special guy. And, you know, he's a fully board certified trained burn surgeon, general surgeon. And he didn't want to use those skills in Iraq. He, he was going for the greater good, you know, of government building stabilization. And he was able to do that as a medical officer. So these opportunities are so unique. I think, you know, from the Army perspective, you know, from his Army perspective, you know, yes, he has, he has these life-saving skills, but first off, you're an Army soldier. And then you're a surgeon second. And I, I think my army colleagues out there who are listening, they would probably agree with what I just said, you know, and that another unique opportunity there. There's a number of ways if someone is looking to, you know, pursue a life of public service in this way, perhaps in a, in a 
it's something to come to maybe a little later on. You know, it's, it's one thing like, oh, I'm 17, I'm going to enlist and just kind of go from the, the build things from the ground up as far as a career involved with the military. But for folks who are either in training or maybe in med, like finishing med school and looking at residencies and thinking about, you know, or maybe it's after undergrad, before med school, I want Uncle Sam to pay for med school. Can you maybe describe a couple of the other tracks that you have encountered? I would say if if you've never been in the service before, there is a track for you in the reserves. There are some incentives out there for, it may not pay for everything, okay? But it could pay a good chunk being in the reserves. I was just doing some research here before we came on. In the reserves, Army, Army National Guard, Air Force Reserve, Air National Guard, Navy Reserve, they all have incentives for reservists who are in training. And those those incentives potentially max out at $250,000. And so, you know, med school, private med school these days, 500,000. So if you're willing to do three to four years in the reserves, you could max out at 250,000 in terms of compensation going towards your student loans. Now for medical students, I don't, I don't know of any programs in the reserve, but I definitely know for, for residents and newly minted physicians. So those people who have loans, but they don't wanna make the reserve a 20 year career, they, there's incentive to do a four-year stint in the reserves and have a big chunk of your medical school loans paid for if you meet all the requirements, okay? And so, yeah, I saw that. It was, it's tapped out at $250,000. That's a, a big chunk. And don't know if it's tax-free. Uh, don't know about that. And so those it may things depend happen. on if you're deployed or I know there's some special provisions around. Oh yeah. Yes. Where it, you are when you earn it. That exactly. You know, so, but those incentives are out there and I know they exist for residents and newly minted physicians. Don't know anything about medical student, you know, incentives. So for listeners who are, you know, thinking about this, and we'll assume that they're either residents or further along in training who want to like take that next step or like, this is interesting. I want to shake things up. I'm, I'm in a rut. I'm two years and working for a big private practice. And I'm like this, I'm getting bored, you know, clinically, this isn't stimulating. And I want to, I'm having that midlife crisis that you described. <laughs> well, let me, and I want to investigate further. What, sh- where would you recommend that they start? Well, they, they have to find a health professions reserve recruiter, not the active duty recruiter health professions reserve recruiter and that's your access point now the recruiters are hit or miss i'm going to say it because everyone knows it they're used car salesmen okay they just want to get you in they just want to get you in they don't make it easy this is the this is the federal government dod things work like molasses now, the younger you are, the younger you are, new, new attending, 30-ish years of age, the easier it is going to get in because they don't have to vet your health. 
right? Because it's all dependent upon health. Now, if you meet the profile of someone who is 55 years old and has been in a healthcare system that will allow you to go out and be a reservist, and you already have a lot of money, and now you have a lot of time, and now you want to become, you want to give back. And there's exactly, there's a lot of those people who want to give back. I want to give back to my country. It's going to take a little bit of time to get in. Okay. It's going to take upwards from, if you're in superior condition, you're an Ironman at 55 years old, it's still going to take time for you to get in because they got to vet your medical. They got to vet a lot of things. So be prepared for a three-year process. <laughs> a three-year process. And so just think about that. It's age dependent. The older you are, the longer it's going to take. The younger you are, the faster you're going to get in. Okay. But the recruiters, it's dependent upon the recruiter. If they're on top of it, they'll get you in faster. If they're not, it's going to take a little while. And so it's really up to the person how dogged and determined they are to serve. And, you know, in doing my research here, I YouTubed, you know, oldest age of, you know, people going into the reserve. I found a 62-year-old neurosurgeon, prominent neurosurgeon out of Beverly Hills. You can YouTube him. And he joined the Army Reserve at 62. And I'm sure it took, him, took a long time for him to get in, but he's in now. There's another Army emergency medicine physician coming in at 53. He, these guys are, are established physicians. They've got the time now, and they've got the money, and they want to serve. And it took a little while for them to get in, but they're in now. And, you know, their skills, they're applying their skills. You know, I was working with a, a emergency medicine resident the other day. and She knew I was in the Air Force. She goes, oh, Dr. Galora, my father was in the Air Force Reserve like you. He graduated. He graduated from residency. And he said, I have all these skills. He was a trauma surgeon from Detroit, from Detroit Rock City, where the knife and gun club is heavy and, and fast. And he said, I have all these skills. I want to I wanna give back. So he joined the reserves for three years. And he deployed once to Afghanistan and used all his skills. And that's how he gave back, you know. And so, and he's no longer in, but he's a veteran now. And he was able to serve a special community. I'm curious, are there any like misconceptions or things that people, you think, you've observed that they think and that are maybe a little off base. Okay. Yeah. Here, I'm glad you brought that up. Now here it is. We have something called, you know, Oh, you're a reservist. Oh, one week in a month, two weeks out of the year as a physician. That's what you do. Huh? Uh, you know, you're not really, you're not really active duty or anything like that. I'm like, wait a minute. Things have changed in the last 20 years. We have drawn down our forces. You know, the active duty numbers have dwindled down. We're a leaner, meaner military because they've relied more on the reservists. So about 
I'd say 20 or 30 years ago, the Air Force started implementing this concept called total force. And they've slowly ramped it up. And now active duty and Air Force Reserve and Air National Guard are seen as one. And so it's almost seamless, especially in the air crew, air crew career field. If you're an Air Force Reservist, you're fly- you could be flying any day with active duty and you can't tell the difference, okay? And that's how it's going for medicine too. They can plug a CCAT physician, a critical care air transport physician, who is an Air Force Reservist into an active duty billet and you can't tell the difference. So the total force concept is here. And so that misconception of, oh, the weekend warrior doesn't hold anymore, okay? So so to, to the people listening out there, when you sign on the dotted line, you can't sign on thinking, oh, I'm just a weekend warrior. You are, you are a critical asset, okay? And when they call you up, they're going to call you up and they're going to send you down there for six to nine months. And so this is, this, is, this is a serious thing when you sign on that dotted line as a, a reservist, and especially as an anesthesiologist. <laughs> if you're a surgeon, anesthesiologist, any, any surgical subspecialty, any anesthesiologist, if you sign on that dotted line, you got to make sure they're giving you all the incentives they said they're going to give you because when the balloon goes up, they're going to call you and you're going to go down there and you have, and wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't sign. Yes, you did sign up for this. You did sign up for this, you know? And so really who is the perfect candidate for this? Okay. If you're in private practice, I don't think this is for you. Okay. Because your practice is going to take a hit if you are gone for nine months. Okay. If you work for a large healthcare system, like me, the VA, Kaiser, a huge university health system that can lose an anesthesiologist for nine months, this may be for you, okay? But private practice, probably not. I have a a lot of colleagues at work who are young attendings, and they always ask me, I kind of want to join the Air Force or the military. And they're young guys and they have toddlers at home. And I just go, no. (laughs) Can you be away from your child for nine months? And most of my active duty counterparts who went down, who deployed to Afghanistan and had young kids, one deployment and then they were out of the they were they were done with their commitment, they were out because they, it was very difficult to be away, you know? So I'm speaking to the guys and gals who, you know, who can, who can shoulder that, that burden of being away and know what the true costs are. I'm thinking about like the roots of this decision for you. And I'm interested to understand it a little better. And I'm curious, did you, you know, growing up or your dad growing? So did you grow up in the Philippines or was it here? No, I grew up here. 
Okay. I'm wondering if you ever... My father grew up in the Philippines, and uh, yeah, he he immigrated here. I'm curious, did he have any experiences like with the American military or being in proximity to an Air Force base that sort of influenced the way that this culture has been cultivated in your family? You know, he always wanted to join the military. He actually, I think he went down to the, he, he was telling me he went down to the Navy recruiter when he was 16 in the Philippines and he made it through all the tests. And then they finally asked him, how, you, you're too skinny. How old are you? He goes, oh, I'm only 16. And they sent him back home. So he always wanted to join the military. And so, you know, I've been able to fulfill his dreams a couple of times over. And now, and now, you know, I was the first generation in my family. Now we have the second generation. My son's in the Air Force Reserve and he's having a phenomenal time. You know, he's, he's air crew. And so I think for me right now, it, it boils down to the, to the themes and maybe I can I, I send it out there again. It, it's service, you know, team and adventure. That's what this is all about. I was listening to Jesse Ehrenfeld yesterday. He was on Judd Walpaw's podcast, ACRAC. Dr. Ehrenfeld is not, you know, he's the president-elect for the AMA, anesthesiologist out of Wisconsin, young guy. And he was, uh, Jed was doing his bio, and um, Dr. Ehrenfeld talked about how he was, after he graduated from residency, he wanted that, he, he wanted to be a part of the military because of the team. And he deployed as an anesthesiologist to Afghanistan with his team, with his reserve unit. I think he was at Kandahar and he was in charge. And he said, you know, in the civilian world, you can be in the OR and it's not the same team every day. But when he, Dr. Ehrenfeld said, when I was in Afghanistan for nine months straight, it was the same team. And it's a special bond. And it's, I, I think what I'm saying, what Dr. Ehrenfeld is saying, it's about service team. And he got the adventure too, because he was in Afghanistan, <laughs> you know? And so if you do this, it may not, maybe it might be for the money a little bit. There's not a whole lot of money, I would say, upfront there is. But if you do a 20 year career in the reserves, you know, you're going to get a pension at 60. You know, it's not going to be this rip roaring pension that an active duty, your active duty counterpart is going to be. So it's got to be something more than that. So it speaks to service. It speaks to taking care. You have skills that you want to apply to a special population, you know, and then you want to be a part of a team, a special team of like-minded people. And you run into these people, you know, and then, and then it's the adventure, you know, that unique opportunities that civilians just don't get, you know, and now, now, we talked about this earlier. We talked about my midlife crisis earlier before he came on. I was 53 years old. My kids are leaving high school, going into college. And a special opportunity came up. And it's called the Special Operations Surgical Team. <laughs> and this team is an Air Force team that goes out with the special operators. You don't, you know, you go beyond the wire and you're not fighting you know, what these special operators are doing what they're doing, but you're, you're held back just a little bit, maybe a hundred meters back, a hundred meters back. You're close proximity. You're, you're close proximity. I don't know, you know, but if one of those guys or gals gets hurt, they're bringing them right to you. 
And so I had an opportunity to try out for that team and just get, you know, a sliver, a sliver, a glimpse of what special ops is about. I didn't make the team, but I got a, a, a sliver of what that is about. They're a special group of people. And one of my guys, it's called assessment and selection. One of the guys on my team who went through assessment and selection, he used to be a Marine officer. And he was in Iraq and one of his guys got blown up. And so he took his, his Marine to the aid station. He saw the Navy docs, active duty Navy docs and Navy corpsmen working on him. And those guys saved his Marine's life. And when he, when my buddy walked out of that tent as a, a Marine you know, Lieutenant, he said, one day I'm going to be like that. I'm gonna be a surgeon. So, you know, fast forward 15 years later, him and I are going through special ops assessment and selection. He made the team and he's coming full circle. He's a reservist. He's a vascular surgeon, Bill Johnson at NYU. And he's attached to the Air National Guard SOS team in Pennsylvania. So he's coming full circle and he's gonna be that surgeon taking care of the Marine whenever he has to go somewhere. So special stories that I can share with you special people who are doing interesting things and they want to do it because of service. That's what it is. They're not doing it for the money, folks. They're not doing it for the money. Yeah. I mean, for specialty physicians, it's often a trade down economically. And yes. So the motivations are other than yes. the money. Yes. I'm curious, as you think about your various experiences domestically, internationally, all the people that you've met, if you have a, a moment as a physician where you felt like where, where the medicine and the military intersect and you're in this moment of service and clinical practice and you're doing what you're doing and you, you had a, just a reflection of like, I feel like I'm, I'm living out my best life right now, whether it was a patient encounter or, a, you know, something happening with some of your colleagues or, okay. uh, you know, okay. You know, here, once again, I was a medical student and at this point, I was in the Air National Guard because uh, I went to medical school in Arizona. Uh, and so I switched over to the Air National Guard from the Air Force Reserve. And it was between first and second year of, of med school. And uh, I was a traditional you know, guardsman one week in a month, two weeks out of the year. So our two weeks, we were going to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to Japan and I'm going to do a family practice rotation. No, no, it was between third and fourth year of medical school. So I'm going to do a family practice rotation at Yokota Air Base in Japan. Work with this great family practice doc there and didn't have much time. It was only two weeks. I can only do a couple of things. And so one of those things was climb Mount Fuji. So I did that. We did that with my unit. But I think beyond Mount Fuji, at Yokota Air Base in 2003, they had just redid their runway. <laughs> the base commander says, on Friday, no one's working. The whole base is going to run the runway. <laughs> and so <laughs> my Air National Guard unit from Arizona we're out there on the runway with the whole base. We're all lined up in military formation and they got helicopters over the runway filming. 
and we start running, we have the guide on, that right there is about esprit de corps, teamwork right there. We're running the runway, and I swear to God, I thought we were running for three miles. I didn't think a runway was that long, man. But that's what I'm talking about. What you're asking, here I am, a doc, a doc. I'm running with all my colleagues. It was the best moment ever. Active duty, Air National Guard, Air Force Reserve, on the runway in Japan, you know, representing our country. It was amazing. Those things, you, yeah, it's just, I couldn't believe it. I just love it. I just love it. And all the guys out there who are listening right now, who are in the service, I know you've had the same moment too that Justin's talking about. Mm. <laughs> Sounds incredible. I'm kind of getting goosebumps. <laughs> it. I, uh, I think that's a good note to end on. So Dr. Galora, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and hearing about your experience. And if, if people are listening and they want to get a hold of you, how can they best do that? Can we can we link my email address? Definitely for the podcast. Yeah, we can do that. They can they can reach out to me and we can talk. And, you know, if they're interested in Air Force Reserve, why don't you go ahead and shout it out? Just okay, so, for listeners who aren't going to go to the show notes. Oh, okay. The easiest thing is uh, Joseph at va gov. Great, Galura G A L U R A. Uh huh. Joseph at va gov. And we'll put all this in the show notes as well and uh, some of the links to other resources that Dr. Glora mentioned. Dr. Glora, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Justin, thank you so much for talking to me. I hope uh, people get something out of this, you know, because I know people are out there thinking there's other there's other ways to serve too. If you have other questions about that, I can I can answer that if you reach out to me. Awesome. Thanks. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.